This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The Old Testament reading for today will be taken from the book of Deuteronomy with the one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, and then we move on to Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. You shall not murder. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it and from human beings. Each one for the blood of another I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human... By human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. And you be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No, I'm not James Kim. Second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at the 21st verse. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled with your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Uh, very warm welcome to you all and welcome to those who are watching at home. Now, In 1947, just after the Second World War, the American soldier and military historian, Brigadier S.L.A. Marshall, he was nicknamed Slam for having those initials, published his uh, well-known book called Men Against Fire, The Problem of battle command. Now, what was the problem of battle command? 
Well, Marshall claimed that only 25% of men in battle even fired their weapons. And even those who do fire their weapons in battle often shoot, according to Marshall, to miss rather than shoot to kill. As Marshall wrote, the soldier will not take life if it is possible to turn away from that responsibility. And at the vital point, he becomes a conscientious objector. Now, Marshall's statistics have been disputed, but his essential claim about human beings stand. And his study actually led to a revolution in military training, where uh, they, uh, in particular, emphasised in training allegiance to your friends, and instead of putting uh, targets with circles on them, they put targets in the form of human beings, so that people became used to shooting at human beings. But he, says, he has said something essential about human beings that still stands today, and that is that killing does not come naturally to us. Why? Well, there is something in human beings that is horrified by the thought of killing another person. We know that even for professional soldiers, to have killed someone in the heat of battle is a deeply traumatic experience. Is it any wonder that so many of our fathers and grandfathers did not speak of their war experiences? While some were proud, many were in fact ashamed of having killed. We universally judge murder to be the worst of all crimes and the murderer to be the worst of all criminals. We don't want to be thought of as a killer. And yet, and this is the sort of singular mystery at the heart of this this observation, we find ways as human beings to overcome our natural horror and kill one another. As a race, you'd have to agree we are accomplished killers. Who could deny it? For when other human beings become inconvenient to us, we find a way to justify our disposal of them, whether that be by the technology that shields us from the, from the horror and violence that we don't want to see close up, or by using euphemisms for killing that we like to imagine absolve us from the crime of murder. So while we may have heard the command this morning, do not murder, and skipped over it from, with some relief because we always say to ourselves, I've never killed anyone, Jesus himself will urge us to less haste here. For this commandment looks not just to the blood on our hands, but to the hatred that lurks in our hearts. So what does this command actually teach? Well, it's not very complicated at one level. The Hebrew word for murder or killing here is the word retzach, which means unlawful killing. That is murder. It's well translated by that word because it does not include possibly legitimate killing, killing that may occur as a result of a judicial process uh, or killing that may occur in the time of war, uh, legitimate war. So it does say illegitimate killing is something we should not do. Unlawful killing is banned. But this, of course, invites us to ask, what is it that makes particular instances of killing lawful or unlawful? There's those famous classroom conundrums about whether you should kill one innocent person to save several other innocent persons. You know, there's usually a trolley bus involved. You know, those sorts of, uh, those, those sorts of theoretical problems. Or whether killing in self-defence is legitimate. 
Uh, there's the ongoing debates in our society around the world about euthanasia and abortion and tyrannicide. Just this week, a US congressman called for the assassination of Vladimir Putin, for example. Was this a case? Would this be a case of justifiable homicide? What would you do? But before we get entangled in those issues, it's vital not to miss three other things that this command is teaching us. The first is that it's the God of the living who is the author and the giver of life. As the theologian Karl Barth says, human life, one's own and that of others, belongs to God. That's a fundamental principle here. Human life belongs to God, our own life and the lives of others. It is not for us, then, to callously and wantonly and indifferently overrule God and take human life according to our own wills. He commands us not to take it, but rather to protect it and advance it. It is he who breathes the breath of life into human beings. Life, human life, belongs to him and not to us. And this leads us then to the second thing, which is that human beings are made in the image of God and so have a particular sanctity and dignity that comes from this. Human beings are never to be disposed of, never to be counted of as a means to some end, never to be held as cheap or replaceable. Even well before the encounter we have here in the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, God had said to Noah, this was our other reading, our other first reading, God said to Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, from each human being I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made humankind. The preservation and protection of every human life without division into friend or foe, race or sex, born or unborn, well or ill, is commanded of human beings. We dare not unlawfully kill that which is made in God's own image, for we will be answerable to God for them. Just as the blood of the innocent Abel called out from the ground after his twin brother Cain killed him, so human blood will not go unrequited. The blood of our fellow human beings calls out from the ground. Theologian John Calvin once said, Scripture notes a twofold equity on which this command is founded. Man is both the image of God and our flesh. Wherefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. Two reasons. To preserve life and not kill. Our fellow creatures, our fellow human beings are made in God's image and they share our own flesh. Now we shouldn't underestimate the importance of this for our world. The teaching that all human beings are in the image of God and therefore have a right to life is not something that has always been believed. In fact, it is something under deep challenge in our day and age. At the end of the 19th century, under the impact of Darwinian teachings, not Charles Darwin's own teachings, but those who interpreted them, the killing of races deemed to be less advanced was justified with bloody results even in our own country. They were seen to be less human 
than Europeans? Am I my brother's keeper? Was the question that Cain asked in denial of his responsibility for the life of Abel. The Bible's answer, God's own answer, am I my brother's keeper, am I my sister's keeper, is yes. Yes, you are. Then there's the third thing that this command teaches us. Both Paul and Jesus teach us that the commandments are summed up by the command to love our neighbours as ourselves. This is no less the case with this command. We are not just to kill, but in an active sense to preserve the lives of others, including, says Jesus, our enemies, who who we may be very well tempted to kill. We should not do them any kind of harm, nor wish any kind of harm upon them. And we should take care for the lives of others. When we have the opportunity to save our neighbours from bodily harm and fail to do it, we violate this command. When we are reckless or indifferent to the physical suffering of others or the potential for us to do deep damage to them, then we fail to love them in their bodily life. This might go with the way we drive as much as anything else. We can kill by neglect. We can kill by our participation in economic or bureaucratic or governmental systems that treat others with callous disregard that does not preserve the lives of others. So it is always worth us asking ourselves, do I benefit, do I participate in systemic cruelty to others? Is the government I elect guilty of systemic deliberate cruelty to others? Does it put their lives in jeopardy as a matter of its policies? Do my investments reflect my determination to keep this command? Do the companies I support, does the business I work for, likewise, preserve and protect human life? Or does it keep it, treat it with wanton disregard? Is the blood of my neighbour calling out from the ground for Yes, you are your brother, your sister's keeper. This command then teaches us to protect life and to practice peace. We recognise the seeds of murder in ourselves and in others and we seek to weed them out. When you respond to those who oppose you, not with violence but with love, you fulfil this command. When you put away hatred, when you refuse to knife someone in the back, you are guided by this law. It's interesting, that metaphor, isn't it, that we, we use in, in thinking of gossip and malicious speech, but it is really a kind of act of violence against the person of another in contravention of this command. So then, how do you protect human life? And how do you practice peace in your life? Now, seeing the command as a direction to love perhaps answers our next question. Why is this command necessary? Why do we need to be commanded not to kill? I mean, when you look at the list of the Ten Commandments and you kind of gladly tick off, do not murder, never murdered anyone. Why does anyone need to be told to murder since we're so instinctively against murder? Only murderers need to be told not to murder. Psychopaths, and they're unlikely to listen anyway because they're psychopaths, right? Why do we need to be told not to murder? It's because... Despite the fact that killing is unnatural and traumatising, we do indeed want others to disappear. 
And if we do not actually kill in fact, this is not for lack of us wanting others gone or out of, out of the way. Our wrath, our jealousy, our envy, our greed, our lust, and even just our irritation at others plants in us the seeds of murder. So it's no surprise that we do indeed find ways to get around this command, escape it by either sanitizing killing or by making unlawful killing lawful in our own eyes. So firstly, we, we sanitize killing, don't we? we? We make the ugliness and brutality of it uh, not in front of us. We don't want to see it, so we put it at some remove. We do it in a genteel fashion. We do not want to do it, though we want it done. After all, killing is brutal work. When it, many, one of the many horrific things about the Holocaust, one of its most chilling lessons, was the way in which ordinary middle-class people like you and me, decent people who thought of themselves as moral, went about their daily business as if the concentration camps were not there. They had supported the racist policies of Nazism. They may have not considered themselves out-and-out Nazis, out-and-out racists, but they supported the new self-esteem of their nation and the efficiency that came with it. And they perhaps felt irritated by the success of their Jewish neighbours, envious of their business, envious of the way their children seemed to get into university. But they would have recoiled from the sight of Treblinka or Dachau. They smelt the smoke of the ovens, but did not face the truth and could not acknowledge their own complicity in the industrial-scale killing going on under their noses. This is how ordinary people like you and me can sanitize killing. If we don't see murder, then it's easy for us, easier for us to live with it and to live with ourselves. If we don't know the names or the faces of those that are killed, then we will be readier to put an end to them. There's one way in which we find ourselves as killers. The second way is that we dehumanize those we kill. This instruction says do not murder, and it means those who are made in the image of God, those who share our humanity. And so one way to get away with murder is to dehumanize those you want to kill. Uh, so we've, we strip them of their humanity. We argue that killing them is not murder, and this might be pointing to their race or their disability or their suffering or their lack of agency or the dignity that they've lost or that they are undeveloped in some other way. They become not fully human to us. And so we deploy euphemisms for their killing so we don't have to apply to this act of terminating a life the word murder. We argue that human life has no intrinsic value. We hear that argued and needs to be measured instead according to, according to happiness or pain. Uh, so a particular popular, popular, popular argument circulating around at the moment, a way of ethical thinking uh, called utilitarianism. One particular exponent of that is the philosopher, Australian philosopher, one of our greatest philosophers, Peter Singer. Uh, by all respects, a remarkable scholar and uh, a good man in many ways, but has argued that it's justifiable to kill severely disabled children. Uh, he does not use the word kill, um, but uh, that eating perfectly happy uh, animals is unjustified. Since human beings do not have anything particularly special about them, uh, once we see the, uh, the human 
uh, individual uh, corrupted by disability in a very severe way uh, that they're, they're uh, keeping them alive would cost a, a lot of of money and time, then it's justifiable to do away with them, uh, and yet sentient animal life ought to be preserved. Uh, that's the logic of his position. You can see, dehumanising those we wish to kill. But, as far as the Bible goes, there are some cases in which killing of someone else may be indeed lawful. And by lawful, we mean here, authorised by God himself. What we see in this command, do not murder, is not an absolute command against killing human beings in any and all circumstances. Certainly, that would make no sense of what we see happening in the Bible's narrative itself. Now, uh, we don't have time to discuss this morning all those different potential cases in the detail that they deserve. But we need to approach each case with the overriding principles that we've learnt already. Uh, now, I've put them on my, my outline. I've just put bullet points, and I'm going to give you, so you, know, just to, you might like to write them down. Um, these are the four principles that I think should guide us when we're thinking about human life and about the possibility of killing. First of all, when in doubt, we need to default towards life. When in doubt, when it's morally grey, we need to default towards life. Because we're aware of the consequences. We're aware of the severity of the thing we are thinking about. In killing someone. Secondly, we need to ask what does God command? Has He got a particular thing to say into this situation? Is there a particular way in which the Bible speaks about the, complica the complicated situation that's in front of us about life and death? Thirdly, we need to ask what is loving? What is loving? Uh, what is loving of my neighbor? What is loving of even my enemy? Fourthly, and this is the hardest thing for us to grasp, we need to suspect our own motives for we easily justify even murder to ourselves. We need to suspect our own motives because we easily, human beings, as societies and individuals, justify killing. Now, I thought I would briefly discuss two difficult and topical cases today, euthanasia and tyrannicide, but it's worth us thinking too about... Uh, Killing in war, uh, Christians have disagreed about whether it's uh, right for Christians to go into the military, take up arms and to kill in that situation. Uh, the question of self-defence, um, we might also think about um, uh, I think war and self-defence, we might also think about abortion. Uh, and it's worth saying from the outset that these are, these are complicated and complex cases and they need thinking, careful, prayerful, and biblical thinking about each of them. So giving a glib answer from the pulpit in a couple of minutes won't do. So I'm just cautious of that. Now, it might be that one of these instances, uh, one of these case, cases um, is particular, per, particularly personal to you, and uh, you, you're particularly wrestling with that. I'd be very glad to help you uh, as we try to think biblically uh, and with wisdom about um, each of these instances. But first of all, let me talk about uh, euthanasia and then tyrannicide. Now, euthanasia um, is a complicated, uh, complicated issue, uh, and it's very topical because um, at the moment there's legislation before the New South Wales Parliament um, about euthanasia, uh, or assisted dying, as the current euphemism calls, uh, terms it. 
Um, it's come into place in a number of other states. I think Western Australia, Queensland, Victoria all have legislation in favour of assisted dying, as have a number of uh, Western countries around the world in Europe and in some states in America and Canada. The New South Wales government is discussing this in the upper house as we speak. Uh, now, the question before us is, shouldn't we legit, isn't it legitimate to end the lives of those who are suffering and who, in sound mind, request help to end their pain? Now, it's an issue in which I know there are strong opinions, and I know that some of those opinions are not abstract opinions, that these are, again, personal issues that we're all, uh, we, we may be thinking about in different ways. And I certainly respect that others have come to a different position from mine here. What I do ask, though, is that we as Christians seek to think biblically, with biblical principles in mind, and to respect this command uh, as we seek to apply it. And I have to say on the issue of euthanasia that almost all Christian churches oppose euthanasia, oppose assisted dying legislation because of this command, because they see it as killing and not legitimate killing. At the same time, Christians working in healthcare certainly recognise that there are times when treatment needs to be withdrawn from a sick patient, a, ter a terminally ill patient, and that we need to allow death. This is not an argument to say that we must preserve life at all, kind, at all times. Now, um, my concern about euthanasia, in short, is really relating to my fourth principle. I know the human heart. I've seen the pressure in my pastoral work I've seen pressure put on the elderly by their families. I've seen families uh, speak about the will that they're expecting to access in front of their parents. They've talked about the debts that they were hoping to pay off if only their parents hadn't lived so long. I know that many elderly people and people who are sick don't want to be a burden. They see the expense that goes into their care and the emotional anguish of those around them. I know, uh, that I know that effective palliative care will now be seen as an expensive inconvenience by hospitals, families, and governments. And so choices will be reduced, in fact, rather than expanded. As a result of assisted dying legislation, I think suffering of the terminally ill will increase, not decrease. I've also seen how assisted dying legislation has been used in other parts of the world to justify the assisted suicides of those who are not dying, but simply depressed. And I think of that possibility with horror for our own society. Now, as I said before, you will have to come to your own mind. But if you would like to do some more thinking on this subject, please do email me. Uh, we have in our midst an expert on this subject uh, in the form of Professor Megan Best, who is a, an expert, uh, not only a medical doctor, but an expert in palliative care and has written extensively, made submissions to government on the issue of euthanasia. If you'd like to think more about this, uh, as I say, please email me and I'll send you one of her um, uh, very, very excellent papers. Well, that's euthanasia. What about tyrannicide, which is not killing of dinosaurs, particular dinosaurs. It's the killing of a bad, evil leader. I'm not sure if anyone out there thought that it was killing of dinosaurs, but there you go. Would it be justified to kill a Vladimir Putin or an Idi Amin or an Adolf Hitler? Now, famously, uh, one of my theological heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrestled with this question in Nazi Germany. 
He was the gentlest of men, not inclined to sanction killing in almost every circumstance. Uh, he might even have called himself a pacifist, and yet he was uh, and, and profoundly influenced and shaped by the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. He understood the complexity of this question, and that's important, I think. If we immediately say, kill Vladimir Putin, of course, then I think we're not taking seriously the command that says, do not kill. And yet, weighing in the balance are the lives of millions of people. Bonhoeffer decided for himself that it was necessary to kill Hitler, and he signed up for a plot that was designed to carry this out, a plot that failed. But he never used the word justified. He said it was necessary, but he never said that it was justified, because he said, ultimately, it is God who will justify it's ultimately the case that I throw myself on the mercy of God. As a human being, I can't see all the contingencies and possibilities here. I know, just evaluating the, the complex and extreme circumstances in front of me, that this is what I must feel I must do, but I don't choose to justify myself since that is for God to do. Human decisions are imperfectly made. To take the decision to end any human life is indeed a possibility for extreme circumstances. Only done if we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Impressive Christian leaders have come to different decisions on this too. Uh, during the time of Idi Amin in Uganda, and he was a particularly bad ruler in Uganda. Uh, he used to keep the heads of his enemies in a fridge in his, uh, in his palace and he fed them to the crocodiles in Lake Victoria, uh, I understand. The bishops of the Anglican Church, uh, some, of the, some of the most heroic bishops of the Anglican Church in the last hundred years, uh, stood strong against him, including the Archbishop, Janani Lewum, who was eventually murdered for his trouble, martyred indeed, and whose uh, statue is now at the front of uh, Westminster Abbey as one of the martyrs of the 20th century. They asked one of these bishops uh, at one time, they said to him, look, if you were in a meeting with Idi Amin and someone handed you a, a, a pistol, what would you do? And he said, remember this vividly, he said, I would pass this to Idi Amin and I would say, this, sir, is your weapon, not mine. Well, my weapon is the word of God. Can murder be forgiven? Murder is so serious that human courts often treat it as beyond the pale. We issue in some countries death sentences and in many countries life sentences or very, very extensive sentences for murder. We do not know how to imagine a justice that forgives the crime of murder because there is no way to offer restitution to the dead. And how can be, there be a path back from this heinous crime, from killing? But in the Bible, redeemed murderers play a starring role. The God of the living can and does indeed forgive this sin. Think of them. Moses killed an Egyptian foreman. David, King David, killed the husband of his lover. And Paul stood by, minding the coats, while they stoned the Christian uh, martyr Stephen to death. These are all known killers. Moses from his fury. 
David from his kingly lusts, Paul from his religious zeal. Yet the illegitimate killing of the Son of God, executed on phony charges and disposed of by Pilate as an inconvenience, meant for them forgiveness even of murder and reconciliation with God. In his death, Jesus exposed the murderous ways of human beings. That we could dignify murder as a defense of holiness. He was killed because people thought it was pious to do so. That it was what God wanted. And he was killed in order to preserve good order. He was killed because the Roman governor wanted to keep the peace. But God uses this worst of human sins to forgive even the worst of human sinners. And that means whatever the scale of your conviction by this command, however this command has made you look in the mirror this day, wherever you have failed to love and wherever you have let hate fester in your heart, wherever you have been callous in your indifference to the lives of others, there can be an end to it. Moses, David and Paul have blood on their hands, far more, I suppose, than any of us here. And yet that stain on them was washed clean in the blood and by the death of Jesus Christ. So if today you have been, perhaps to your surprise, convicted by this command, know that God's mercy is far wider even than your guilt and shame and that his genius for forgiveness and redemption succeeds where human beings can only imagine it to fail. And as we come to the Lord's table today, bathe yourself once more in his forgiveness, in his merciful love. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.